Good morning, everyone. We start the book of Exodus this morning, and, and God willing, we will uh, be looking at this book through this year, and uh, we would finish on December 31st of 2023. Um, let's pray that God would bless uh, this uh, as we study this book and our time together, and then begin. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help, even as we look at this glorious book. We ask you, O oh Lord, would you open our eyes to see? Would you help us understand? Would you help us apply it in our lives? And I pray that the truths of your word would shape our lives day in and day out. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, Exodus. Um, it's a book that is written by Moses, as many of you might know, and this is the second of a five-volume book that Moses wrote. Right? The whole Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, was written by Moses, and this was more like a second volume of his big book that he was writing to the Israelites. And uh, we know for sure that this Exodus is uh, a second volume of a bigger book because of just the way it starts, right? Um, in the English Bibles, it's not very obvious, but in the Hebrew, the first word in the Hebrew starts with and. The last uh, verse in, in Genesis chapter 50, it talks about Joseph dying and they embalmed him and they put him in a coffin in Egypt. And then Exodus starts and says, and these are the sons of Israel. So it's more like just a continuation of a larger story, but a beginning of a new volume that Moses is writing to the people of Israel. Now an important question that we should ask is also, as we begin to, to uh, study this book, when was this book written? We know it was written by Moses, but then when was it written and the... Uh, answer is, is, it was most probably written during the wilderness journey as the people of Israel were making their way towards Canaan, towards the promised land. This was written by Moses for them. So, since this is the second of a five-chapter five or a five-part volume um, book, for us to understand what goes on in Exodus, especially in the beginning of Exodus, we need to know how Genesis ended for us to make sense of, of the storyline and what is going on. And if you look at how Genesis ends, we see Jacob, otherwise known as Israel, and his family, they've come to Egypt. And God is miraculously saving this family through a famine from the hands of, or, or, or by the hand of Joseph. Joseph is unexpectedly raised up and, and lifted up as second in line to Pharaoh. The brothers schemed, the brothers did what was evil, but God used it for good. God raised him up, and in all of this, what God was doing was God was preserving his people, the sons of Israel, and he was taking them to Egypt. And now they are there in Egypt, protected by God, but they are in a foreign land. So, the question is, at the outset, is 
how are they going to fare in a foreign land? They're in Egypt, not familiar territory for them. What would happen to them? And that's how the book of Exodus begins with. And as we see our text for today, chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 10, there's, there's a couple of things that really strikes us. The first thing that strikes us is there's a lot of evil that is going on. There's a lot of evil, there's, there's killing that is going on and there's evil that is there, prevalent. And the second thing that strikes us is God is hardly mentioned. If you read through the text, you just see God mentioned three times and just in passing. And when you look at this text and when you look at us today, the similarity that we have between them then and us now is so much. Because as you look around, you see so much of evil, so much of sin that is rampant, that is going around. And in all of this, sometimes we ask the question, where is God? What is He doing? It just seems like God is silent. But what I want to encourage you this morning is to look at our text more intently. And as we look at our text more intently, you see God all over the place. You see God at work all over the place. And that is what I want to encourage you this morning. This is what Moses wanted his people, the people of Israel, to see as they were making their way to the, the promised land. And as we make our way to our promised land, what I want to encourage you is, I want, to put, I want you to put your trust and hope in the God who sovereignly works amidst evil to fulfill his plans and purposes. You may ask, how is God at work? I don't see his work. I just see him silent with all the evil that is going around. I just see him silent. Well, our text shows four ways in which God is at work amidst the evil. And that is what I want to encourage you with this morning. First of all, we see God is at work and he fulfills his promise. Verses 1 through 7 of Exodus chapter 1. If you could follow along in your Bibles as, as I just walk through, you look at verse 1 and it says, it begins with the names of the sons of Israel. List the all 12 names of the sons of Israel. And then in verse 5, Moses records and he says, the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. This was a number that came from, um, from the land of Canaan. When Jacob made his way to Egypt, these were the number of people that came. And he records and he says, it was 70. And then he interestingly notes in verse 6, he says, Joseph died 
and all his brothers and all that generation. If you've been reading along, a person who's been reading along from Genesis would notice that the key figures in the story that Moses has been telling, all the, the key figures, the patriarchs, they're dead and gone. And you would think, as you read this, since the sons of Israel disappear, that would be the end of the descendants of Israel as well. They would just disintegrate and disappear. But then, you look at verse 7. It begins with a contrast. He says, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew ex exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Moses was using all these words intentionally. Look at the number of words that he uses to, to just explain that this was a people who, who enlarged, who grew. He says, they were fruitful, they increased greatly, they multiplied, they grew exceedingly strong, the land was filled with them. Five ways he explains the same thing. Why? What was he trying to emphasize? Each of these has such a big significance for a reader. Notice, he begins verse 7 by saying, the people of Israel. How did he start verse 1? The sons of Israel. The sons of Israel became a people of Israel. They became a nation. That was something significant. He uses the words fruitful and multiplied. Where have we heard these words before? It was in the garden. The mandate that God gave to Adam, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And not just to Adam, after he wiped out everyone except Noah and his family, he says the same thing again, be fruitful and multiply. And what is God doing here? Making the people fruitful and multiply. The growth that Moses records and, and he says was just exponential. It wasn't normal. And it was a fulfillment of the promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Where God told Abraham, a guy who didn't even have a child, he said, your descendants will be like the sands of the seashore and the stars of the sky. And what Moses is saying, what you're seeing right now, with the sons of Israel becoming the people of Israel, a nation, and them growing, growing strong and mighty and multiplying, is a fulfillment of the promise of God. It was nothing but the hand of God that was at work. God was at work fulfilling His promise to His people. 
Now, why was this detail, these details important for a people who were journeying in the wilderness and making their way to the promised land? Why would this be helpful? Because this was a people who were looking forward to this promise that was made to Abraham come to fulfillment. Because God just didn't say to Abraham that his descendants would be like the, the, the stars of the sky and the sands on the seashore. But he also said that this would be a people who would come back to that land where he is right now, which was Canaan, and they will inhabit the land. These were a people, the people of Israel, who were journeying and making their way towards the promised land, were looking at the promise being fulfilled in part, but also looking forward to a promise that would be fulfilled one day. That promise to Abraham. That promise which was repeated again to Isaac, to, to Israel, to Jacob. They were looking forward to that promise being fulfilled. And Moses was saying, hey, the first part of the promise, look at how it is fulfilled. See with your own eyes. Look around. And look at the multitude of people. He's brought it to fulfillment. He's at work. We too are journeying towards the promised land, aren't we? We too have seen the fulfillment of God's promise so many times. And we too are looking forward to, to the God's promises being fulfilled and us entering a promised land. A city whose maker and whose builder is God himself. And friends, as we sojourn, as we make this journey, we can easily lose hope. We can easily lose trust. And we can easily lose hope unless, unless we look back at the promise that has been fulfilled already. The promise that has been fulfilled to the minutest of details by God and His work. We can, lose, uh, we can easily lose hope unless we look intently at what God is doing. You look intently at what God has done to His people, the church, and you just can't miss the sovereignty of God and how He has worked in His people. Twelve sons became a people, a nation. Twelve disciples God uses to make disciples of nations and gather them. God is building His church. God is at work. The numbers here in, in Exodus chapter 1 was just phenomenal. The, the increase was phenomenal. And now, today, when you see the church, God's church, people being added to the church, it's phenomenal. And it cannot be attributed to anyone except God and His work. It's not because of 12 men. 
They did their job. God used them. They died and they went. God is the one who is orchestrating the events. God is the one who is at work and fulfilling his promise. And today, as you hear his promise, the promise of his return to take us to the land of promise, do you trust him? Do you trust him even though he seems to be silent? Our trust, it isn't just a, an intellectual acceptance of some truth, but it's something that shapes our life and it should be resulting in a life that is lived differently. The people of Israel, they were called to see the fulfillment of the promise. Read texts like these. They were called to see this fulfillment of the promise. And what were they called to do? They were called to move forward towards the land. They were called to prepare themselves for entering the land as a nation. They were called to do the duties that God had given them together. That is what their trust in the promises meant. And for us, our trust in the promise of our, our king who is going to return and who is going to take us home, how should that look like? should look in the way that we yearn and we look forward to that land. It should look in the way that we live in, in right relationship with God. Not just as individuals, but collectively as His people, spurring on one another, reminding each other His promises. And in the way that we go about the duties that He has given us to do, in preparation for His coming, to take us to be with Him, gathering a people for Himself, preaching the gospel, and letting people see, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, to believe in these promises, and to come along in our journey. God is at work Fulfilling His promise. Not only is, is God at work fulfilling His promises, but also, secondly, the second way that we see God at work is God is at work despite all odds. Verses 8 through 14. Verse 8, you see, He, he begins... And he says, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. There was no influence that they had. There was no power that they had. And he didn't know Joseph, the new king that rose. And what does this new king do? He sees the people of Israel. He sees them as a threat. And he fears them. And he says, they are too many and they are too mighty. Come, let us deal shrewdly, lest they multiply. The fear that Pharaoh has is, they will grow. The way that they are growing exponentially, it's just going to blow off the roof. And they're going to side with the enemies who are going to come and attack us. And they're going to leave. That was his 
fear. And what you see here is always God's plans, God's promises being fulfilled, Satan tries to thwart it. We see him trying to thwart it right in the garden. He tries to thwart it through different people. And now he's going to work through Pharaoh to thwart God's plan. And what you see here is Pharaoh scheming to suppress and to oppress the people of Israel lest they multiply. So in this section, we see the, the first of three schemes that Pharaoh will, will make to suppress them, to not let them grow. And what is the first scheme? Severe oppression. Look in your Bibles. Look at verse 11, 13, and 14. And as I read along, just notice the kind of affliction that he is putting the people of Israel under. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. Verse 13. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. You just can't miss the oppression. And what was the expected result of this oppression? The men would just wear out, fall sick, and die. The women would intermarry, and them as a nation, just gone. Pharaoh would use these men to get his work done and just throw them once the work is finished. This was the expected result of the oppression. What was the actual result of the oppression? Verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. The scheme was to deal harsh. He said, come, let us deal shrewdly, lest they multiply. And the scheme was to oppress them. And what happens because of the oppression? They multiply. The very thing that he did not want to happen, happens all the more. And if this isn't the hand of God, what is if this isn't the work of God, what is? He uses oppression and suffering to grow his people. And this would be a theme that would repeat across scripture. The way that means that God uses to grow his people was oppression and suffering. Even the Israelites who were reading this who were seeing this oppression and who were seeing that there was multiplication that happened because of the oppression, they were also constantly being oppressed by nations around them. 
the odds of them multiplying were heavily against them. But then they saw God's preservation. They saw God's work. And we see the same theme repeating even in the New Testament. In Acts, when the church was severely persecuted, what happened? They grew. Against all odds, they grew in large numbers. Even in church history, you see, whenever there was a persecution, we see the church growing. And how do you explain all of that? It was nothing but the hand of God at work. He is at work despite all odds. Oppression is the means that the devil uses to threaten God's people and to thwart God's plans. And it is the same oppression that God uses and works through to build His church and to purify His church. And today, brothers and sisters, as you hear attack after attack, as you hear about oppression after oppression, hostility against Christians and the church, the choice that is in front of us is, do we tremble and fear at devil's schemes and him trying to thwart God's plans, or do we see God at work through that oppression and submitting to him, trusting in him, holding on to his promises? The odds might be heavily against that. Look at the odds here. Joseph was dead and gone. He was even forgotten. That's what Moses records for us. He was forgotten. Their only hope. There was no chance of survival with this oppression. And still they grew. And today, the odds might be heavily stacked against God and His church growing. And what we see is the hand of God growing His church. God uses oppression. And notice, God isn't just letting His people survive the oppression. Do you notice that? He's letting them prosper in it. He's letting them multiply in that oppression. He's causing them to grow and thrive through it. And even today, what God is doing through oppression and suffering is, is He's helping us grow as individuals, as believers. He takes us through paths of suffering and He helps us grow. As a church, He takes us through oppression and suffering and He helps us grow. And how can we respond to that? If we say that we trust in His promises, if we trust in what the work that He is doing, what would that look like amidst oppression? It would result in us clinging on to Christ amidst every oppression. Fight every sin that can entangle us. It should result in us spurring on one another to press on. Not just get overwhelmed with the, the odds that are heavily stacked against us, the situations that can come and, and threaten us, 
to encourage one another with God's word and say, God is at work. God is building his church. Let's trust him. And it would result in us boldly proclaiming his promises to those around us and calling them to repent and turn. The easier option is just to cave in to the pressure and give in and drift away in unbelief. But the option that ought to be chosen by every believer in Christ is to cling to Christ in trust and hope. God is at work and He is building His church despite all odds. Thirdly, how is God at work when He seems to be silent? God is at work through powerless people. Verses 15 through 21. Scheme number one was to oppress God's people. Plan utterly failed. Does Satan stop scheming? No, he doesn't. Pharaoh comes up with scheme number two. He says, kill the babies, the male babies, secretly. And he gives this instruction to the Hebrew midwives so that even before the baby is out of that room, they are killed. And nobody knows what happened. Secretly kill the male babies. And I want you to notice, Pharaoh was the most powerful ruler of that time. And a word that he said needed to be obeyed. There were severe consequences of anyone who would dare defy his word. And here are these two insignificant, powerless women standing before this mighty king and him giving orders to kill the baby secretly. What do they do? Against all odds, they defy his word. Verse 17, Moses records for us, they feared God and they let the male children live. They defy the most powerful ruler who stood right in front of them and who gave them that decree. Pharaoh finds out that the male population is still on the rise and he calls them, asks them for, asks them for an explanation. There's further threat that, that these women are put under and they intentionally deceive the king and continue to do something that would let them obey God, fear God rather than man. And what was the result? Verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew strong. That same word again. Multiply and grew strong. And verse 21. There's so much of irony that is, that is going on here. Verse 21. God gives the midwives families as well and they too start contributing to this whole population explosion that is going on. He tried to use them to suppress this multiplication, but God uses them to make that even more 
make the people of God multiply even more. God uses powerless people to thwart the mighty and their evil schemes and to take forward his plans and purposes. Again, this is a theme that you see right through scripture. God using powerless, the most insignificant of people throughout history. He informs about the Messiah's birth first to whom? To shepherds, to lowly shepherds. He picks fishermen to take his good news to the ends of the earth. Uneducated people. The news about his resurrection is first told to, told to women, people who are considered lowliest in, in their society. And today, he chooses to use powerless, insignificant people to stand up against the mighty of this world and he fulfills his plans through them. And doesn't Paul rightly say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 25 to 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. What was the whole point of, of God using powerless people? So that He will get the glory. And to to certify and to assure us that this is nothing but the hand of God at work. Him working His plans amidst evil to fulfill His plans. While God uses these insignificant, powerless people sovereignly, I also don't want you to miss out on what He expects from us what our responsibility is. Because what the text clearly shows us is uh, the, the fear of God that these women had. What they, they did what they did because they feared God rather than fearing a mighty king. Twice in our text, it's mentioned that they feared God. And when the king's edict came against God's command, they had absolutely no hesitation whom they would obey because they feared God above everything. They didn't dare to defy God's command to not kill though there was this ominous king standing right in front of them. And Moses records this for the people of Israel who were sojourning on their way to the, in the wilderness, who were at the verge of entering the promised land, and what were they facing? Who were there right in front of them? Ominous people. People in front of whom they were like grasshoppers, according to their own testimony. Should they cave in with fear and run away from fulfilling God's plan? Absolutely not. What were they expected to do? They were expected to fear God, obey His command, and make that way. 
Go that journey. Go and face these people. March on to the land. And friends, that is what is expected of us. Today, you might be facing, we might be facing ominous, powerful leaders, powerful governments who might threaten and who might look ominous and ask us and command us not to obey God's command. The question in front of us is, should we cave in in fear or should we march on? The answer is obvious. Fear God rather than fear man. See what God is doing and play our roles in that situation that God has placed us in. God has given us a mandate to fear Him and, hear, and Him alone. And to fear Him is, is nothing but to just revere Him, obey all that He has commanded us. And in His mercy, He uses powerless, insignificant people like us to take forward His plans to preserve and to build His church. And the question before us is, is the fear of man going to impede us from participating in God's plans? Or are we going to fear God and are we going to march on towards our destination? Make no doubt, God is going to achieve His plans and purposes with or without us. He's giving us that glorious privilege to be a part of it. Just remember what happened to the people who did not fear God, who feared man, and who gave in to that fear. They never made it. They never made it to the promised land. As you face this situation, do we cave in to fear of man, however ominous he might be, or do we fear God and obey his command? For some of us, for many of us, it might not be the ominous leaders that we might be facing directly. But the fear of man can be so subtle, can it not? The fear of man could be stopping you from sharing the gospel with a close friend. What if he becomes hostile and, and I end up losing a friend? The fear of man could be crippling you from serving and to disciple others in the church, thinking, what will they think of me? What will people say? The fear of man can cause you to hide sin. Again, what will they think of me? What if they rebuke me? If I share my struggle, if I share my sin? Do you see all of these fears? The fear of man, it impedes us from participating in God's plan and God doing His work and fulfilling His plan. We lose out. But do we see the way that He has made for us? Do we see that He is a God who is all-powerful and fear Him and obey His commands? 
Don't give in to the fear of man, however ominous he might be, however subtle it might be. Instead, fear him who is rightfully to be feared. May the fear of God grip our lives and cause us to run to him and obey him and him alone. God is at work. How is he at work? Fourthly, God is at work bringing a deliverer to save his people. Verse 22 to chapter 2 and verse 10. What happens when evil schemes are thwarted? Again, does the devil keep silent and say, I give up? No, he doesn't. The evil escalates. Pharaoh comes up with scheme number three. In scheme number two, he tried to secretly kill all the male children. Now he gives a decree to all the people and he says, throw all the male children to the Nile. Evil just escalates. And even today, when you see God's plan being thwarted, the evil just escalates. Does God back off when evil escalates? No. He draws near when evil escalates. And what he does, he raises a deliverer. We're introduced in chapter 2 verse 1. He says, he, we're introduced to a, a family. And Moses records and he says, this is a Levite family. It's again significant. We'll, we'll talk about its significance later on as we look at this book. But what we see here is another woman defying God's command, the, the Pharaoh's command. Already the, the two midwives disobeyed the king. Now there's another woman, Moses' mom, who too defies the command of the king. It's just beautiful how God uses women. Moses' mom is again, in just this passage, the third of five women God would use to fulfill his plans and purposes. And he uses women throughout. Women had a, a special place in his heart. And God uses them. What does Moses' mom do? She tries to hide him. But then when he, he's grown and just can't stop him from crying and the crying gets louder and louder, she puts him in a basket. She carefully makes this basket. She places it in the Nile where Pharaoh had asked them to throw the babies. She keeps it in a safe place in the reed so that it's not taken away by the current. And just hope against hope that this child would be preserved. And what God does is something again staggering. Pharaoh's daughter comes up and shows up. What are the odds that Pharaoh's daughter would show mercy to Moses? Impossible. But then you see something happen. You notice that Pharaoh's daughter is unlike her dad. Her dad is ruthless. She is the one with compassion. Moses records, she opens the basket, sees a child, and she has pity on him. 
There's compassion. You see the, the presence of mind that Miriam, Moses' sister, has. This is the fifth woman that God would use. Fourth was Pharaoh's daughter herself, a Gentile. She's bold. She's quick in her thinking. And she says, okay, can I get you a, a mom who can nurse? Gets Moses' own mom. And what you see is Moses' mom brings him up, gets paid for the job. Just irony woozing out of this text. How was God at work? In the beginning of the passage, he was preserving a nation from evil schemes. Here, he's preserving a leader, preserving a deliverer who would preserve the nation from the evil schemes. Moses, the deliverer, was preserved where? Right under Pharaoh's nose. By his own daughter. Talk about wicked schemes being thwarted. If this isn't the hand of God, if this isn't God at work, what is? Friends, many years later, God would preserve another deliverer. A person born during the reign of another wicked king. A king who was fearful of his throne, just like Pharaoh. He heard that there was a king that was born and he was threatened. He felt threatened. A king who would first secretly try to kill this deliverer. When the wise men came and told him, we've come to worship the king of the Jews. He said, okay, tell me where he is. So that I can go and worship him too. What he was scheming was to secretly kill this child. Just like Pharaoh. And a king, when thwarted, would resort to public killing of male children in all the land. And what was God doing? God was preserving a deliverer. This deliverer, like Moses, who was preserved miraculously in Egypt, will be taken to Egypt to be preserved. But this deliverer, friends, unlike Moses, was not just going to deliver a nation from bondage, but he would deliver nations from their bondage to sin. And he would deliver them by paying the price for their sins on a cruel cross. It is this deliverer who through his death, his burial, his resurrection would gather a people for himself. A people from every tribe, tongue, nation and gather them to his church. The promise to Abraham about his descendants being a multitude that through him blessing would come to the nations was not just about Israel multiplying. It was ultimately about Jesus who would come and make a way for nations to be blessed. This deliverer was Jesus. 
And it is this deliverer who said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. No evil scheme is going to thwart his plan to build his church. And friends, it is he who is at work through his spirit today who is preserving his people and causing them to prosper and to multiply. It is he who is at work thwarting the, the wicked schemes of the evil one. It is he who is at work through suffering, through oppression, preserving a people for himself, purifying his church. And it is he who is using powerless people to gather nations to worship him. And this deliverer promises to come back and deliver us completely and take us to be with him. The people of Israel, as they were sojourning in the wilderness and they were looking forward to their home, the promised land, as they read this text, they were called to look back and look at their deliverer, Moses. A deliverer who would deliver them from Egypt but would not make it inside the land. As we see this today, we look back at a deliverer who has delivered us, who has redeemed us, and who promises that he will take us to be with him forever. What a promise we have. What a hope we have. Should we not trust this God? Should we let our sin impede us from fulfilling, partnering with, and, and, and taking forward His plan and purposes as He gathers a people for Himself? May God help us to fight every sin and see Him at work. Him at work fulfilling His promise. Him at work taking forward His plan through insignificant people, through oppression, and promising to come back and take us to be with Him. May God help us.